Welcome to Cities Unmasked, the U of T School of Cities sponsored podcast about the ways that COVID-19 has highlighted and deepened the contours of urban inequality while amplifying the need for an actualizing tangible action. For each episode in this limited series, we will explore a different lens of cities of inequality in conversation with Lubna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. This pandemic is just showing us that we've always had the resources and the means to help the communities that are needing the help, you know? It's just who do we prioritize and who do we care about? Recognizing what your community needs and taking it upon yourself in a legal way to, um, you know, transform the space and to make it your own and to take your claim on it. People who have like resource constraints be inadvertently excluded out of green spaces because they recognize that if, if they get sick, they don't have that kind of like access to healthcare. Why is that money going to one big park in an affluent area instead of, you know, in the entire park system? So who are these parks for and and what kind of residents are being prioritized? Today, I, Brittany, will be leading a discussion on democratizing the inequitable access to green space. So let's dig into it. Shelter-in-place policies enforced in jurisdictions around the world in response to COVID-19 have highlighted the vastly unequal access to public green space and nature within urban centers, while homeowners with private yards and gardens can comfortably experience the outdoors without compromising physical distancing protocol, urbanites living in confined high-rises have limited access to green amenities. Decades of research have shown that spending time in nature immensely benefits our physical and mental well-being, critical physiological assets that are increasingly threatened and challenged by the chronically stressful modern world. A 2016 WHO report states that urban green spaces such as parks, playgrounds, and residential greenery can reduce morbidity and mortality in urban residents by providing psychological restoration, stimulating social cohesion, fostering physical activity, and reducing exposure to air pollution, noise, and extreme heat. Yet despite its many benefits, in many cities, outdoor space increasingly comes at a premium. According to the Urban Institute, approximately 100 million people in the U.S. live farther than 10 minutes away from a park or green space. One in eight British households is without private outdoor space, with Black residents being four times more likely to be without access. A 2019 UBC study reveals that green space in 10 major American cities was in short supply in lower-income neighborhoods and areas with residents of color. In contrast, Gardens, rooftop or balcony greenery, microparks on pavements or city blocks, and even trees, all of which require long-term investment and maintenance, dotted more affluent areas more frequently. As such, studies show that access to green space positively correlates with income, especially in urban cores. Aided by massive fundraising campaigns and affluent stakeholders, urban parks can be of much higher quality in wealthier districts with private donors. As government park budgets are likely to deteriorate because of the pandemic pressures, a critical pinch point emerges on how to cultivate and leverage private funds to invest in parks in lower-income neighborhoods. Some cities are making significant steps towards producing accessible green space. 92% of Vancouver residents live within a five-minute walk of green space, while almost 300 American mayors have signed the 10-minute walk challenge that parks be a 10-minute walk from all homes in their municipality by 2050, a goal already met by San Francisco in 2017. 
The West Toronto Rail Path is a local example that has transformed 2.1 kilometers of elevated railway into a multi-use green trail, bringing a green reprieve to the industrial junction triangle. Biking the trail takes approximately 10 minutes, which is not enough to satisfy most cyclists. Phase two of the West Toronto Rail Path has been a prolonged process, slated to begin in 2021 if all goes according to plan. View corridors to parks from high-rise housing, tree planting, and streetscapes embellished with vibrant flowers and lush landscaping can also provide interim actions to bridge the Green Divide. As many residents can't visit a park five blocks from their house every day, interacting with nature when looking outside their window or walking down the street also represent meaningful green interventions. While efforts to democratize green space has been a goal of cities long before the age of COVID-19, the conversation has dramatically intensified since the pandemic amplified this socio-spatial disparity. While there is hope that this momentum will accelerate the pre-pandemic push, For better community gardens, more accessible parks, and green streetscapes, a tangible change must originate from city governance, prioritizing them. Doctors in the UK were actually prescribing walks in nature for their patients to help them control stress, high blood pressure, and all these other things. The notion of public parks is foreign to this land, and the design and governance of these spaces is carefully curated and communicates who the spaces are for. There are a lot of quick decisions that need to be made about public space during this time, and those quick decisions filter out the opinions of those whose voices were considered optional. Classic Toronto example is, you know, we have an incredible ravine system and it's beautiful natural spaces very close to some underserviced neighborhoods that have extremely large challenges accessing that. How do we tell the entire public that we are protecting these spaces for people of color, for Indigenous people, for Black people? Your bigotry isn't welcome in these spaces. So how might municipalities support the development of inclusive green space that preserves its affordability? Well, I think one of the things we can definitely talk about is green gentrification. You know, I think when people when like cities are trying to incorporate green spaces, uh, no matter where it is in the city, you have to think about what's coming out to put that green space in. Um, and, you know, we see like a lot of the times they put it in areas without thinking about the residents that are being displaced or the shops and amenities that um, people rely on that are being moved as a result. So I think that's definitely something that's important for us to to consider when we're talking about green spaces. Yeah, and moreover on that, when you talk about green spaces and the privatization of green spaces due to lack of government funding, there are a few risks that come with that. And whose interests are the interests that are being brought forward in these private uh, stakeholder conversations, you know, and there are lots of examples of this going wrong. Um, We can see with Occupy Wall Street. Rikers Island in New York, Sidewalk Labs, they just pulled out recently um, at the beginning of the pandemic. And so they have the upper hand in these situations. And at many times, this fight to privatize really pushes away poor communities and it continues to marginalize them and sideline their interests. And so a lot of these conversations, you know, with privatization as an alternate option come with a grain of salt. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a tricky issue. I think that, yeah, I think that's definitely an important point to make. I think like when you're having like privately funded parks, it's really a hit or miss about uh, whether the private funder uh, cares about the space and whether they want to continue to invest in it. Because, you know, um, 
you don't have a lot of like authority when it's private funding um, and you could have spaces that uh, just end up being let go that could have been beautiful parks that uh, have turned into, you know, you see these like these spaces by the side of the road that just aren't taken care of because the city really can't do a lot about it. Parks are very low on city budgets. So you're relying on external stakeholders to take the lead and meet the financial need that cities can't provide. But then what is coming at the result of that external support? Is there any public consultation? Is it determined by by outside stakeholders and not by residents themselves? And even with Rail Deck Park in Toronto, which Meritori recently said is still a priority, even with, with COVID-19, but then it's a very expensive park. In, in a nice area of the city, why is that money going to one big park in an affluent area instead of, you know, in the entire park system? So who are these parks for and, and what kind of residents are being prioritized in their creation? Exactly. And I think um, Brittany raises a great point about public consultation. How do you honor those public consultations? A lot of the times it's just a PR checklist to show that they've consulted and that they care at some level about the you know public engagement. But there's a way to do that by honoring the process and to actually meet with communities in ways that amplify their voices and that offer different options to consult that's not just sitting in a room and facing the front. Different languages, the way you set up the tables in the room, the times that the consultations are available at, you know, um, especially if you're going to poor communities where many of the families are working two jobs and don't have that kind of availability to bring forward their time to be engaged in community processes like these. And there's just a lot of veto checks that need to happen at every stage to sort of ensure that you don't have those same issues that come up again and again when private companies introduce themselves into publicly funded spaces, meaning that continues to gentrify and hurt communities who are most impacted and who most need green space, access to green space. Just, just to kind of like add on to that from, um, from, from the perspective of someone who comes from a developing country where where governments or like local government just doesn't have the resources to maintain um, parks or other green spaces. I definitely concur that um, that there is a role for private companies to kind of like come in and, but, but it's also like equally uh, important, like everyone's talked about um, how there needs to be regulation of that to a greater extent. Finding the right balance between um, having communities and the government, you know, be involved to protect their right to the city and make sure that their needs are being prioritized without kind of putting their financial interests into the park over the residents' needs. Yeah, and I think Ali raises a great point about, you know, your own personal experiences with access to green space. And that looks different for, you know, each person. And um, that also has a lot to do, again, with, you know, geography, uh, where you are, not just on a local scale of Toronto or the GTA, but like even on a global scale in the world. And, you know, I myself, I grew up in Guyana in South America, and I lived there for the first seven years of my life. And there, there was ample green space because that's island life, you know, I had coconut trees in my backyard and access to a pasture right in front of my house. And and, you know, you grow your own food in your backyard and that's that's life. That's normal. But when you come here, I, I moved into an apartment building at first when we first lived in Canada. And then I only had I don't know what the measurement was, but just a balcony, a concrete balcony and like a concrete playground was my immediate access to green space. And if I needed to go anywhere further. I'd have to commute either by foot or by bicycle to a local park or further out with a car to beaches or to picnic spots. And, you know, as 
now we live in a house, so I have access to more green space in my immediate surroundings, you know, my par- local park, my backyard, and, you know, whatnot. But not everyone has access in the same ways. And especially in a time like now where there's we're dealing with COVID-19, you know, mental health is such a big discussion. And green, there's been research that shows that the more access you have to green space, the better your mental health is, or it has a positive, like a you know, positive feedback loop. Loop. So it's just uh, an interesting conversation to have. I know that um, that might look different for each person and where they come from. I have a balcony in my condo that you can really just stand on very, very small. Um, so I have to go to a park and, and go out of my way to see it. And then growing up in, in the suburbs in Kitchener, it was in my backyard. You definitely see like in the city, you really... Like- you don't miss green space until you're without it and you realize how important it is to have. Like I grew up in a small town, so I'm always surrounded by lots of trees, lots of farmland and stuff. So you just like you get used to it and you're not really appreciating it and how much it like helps you and helps your mental health until you, you get to the city and you realize that you have to actually seek out the green space and make like the physical decision to go to a park instead of being completely surrounded by it. And I think that really definitely impacts your mental health, especially during the pandemic. There's a saying, the more attractive it is, the more gentrified it is. And in Toronto itself, you can, and lots of other big cities, you can see steps that are being taken to implement green space. In a lot of, you know, apartment complexes, for example, there's lots of, there are green roofs and there are solar panels on the top um, and trees that are being planted and grass. And there's a lot of bike shares and, you know, these are, and community gardens even, you know, these are potential solutions that have been put forward and that are in place for communities that have very limited access to green space. But again, these communities are the same ones that have access to funds as well, you know? Um, And just even on a more current issue, just uh, yesterday, Metrolinx announced, um, that the Jane and Finch community hub uh, funding will be pulled from it, you know, um, and there's been a lot of outspoken backlash about about that move because that is a community that that you know is divided in many ways and that needs that space for their youth to come together. Um, and it's just uh, again power and politics and and money and who gets access and who doesn't. Yorkville alone, that BIA spends approximately $13 million a year just on maintenance and landscaping. So who would be paying for that in lower income neighborhoods? And kind of as you indicated, if the funding's not there, no one. Cities aren't prioritizing it, especially with budget cuts because of expenses from COVID-19. So it's, it's certainly something that's not prioritize um, to the impact, you know, to the extent that it should be, but it does have a very extreme impact on our physical and mental health, especially when people have small apartments, they don't have areas to, to be outside, breathe fresh air, have some sort of social interaction, even if just from a distance and even to exercise, to go for a walk, to, you know, have some sort of reprieve from the difficult challenges we're all experiencing right now. It's more important now than ever, but it's, you know, constrained now more than ever as well. And it's it's very hard uh, when those people, you know, people downtown especially don't have ready ready access to green space you know they turn to parks and parks get overcrowded and green areas especially now in the summer where it's warm and you know the sun's shining and you want to be outside 
kind of is the difference between private green space and having that ready access to then having to seek out public green space. And with COVID, like how are you able to social distance in Toronto with Trinity Bellwoods? It was absolutely crazy and frankly, extremely unsafe with people not physical distancing at all. And now they've put in the circles um, to kind of enforce the the six feet rule. But even that, it, it makes you know, public green space seem almost scary, but it is something that we do need. You brought up like Trinity Bellwood. I, I went there as in like, I walked past it. And even though, even though there are those circles, no one's really following them. When I, when I look at that and when I recognize that, you know, like there's definitely need for people to access green spaces for their mental or physical health. On the other hand, is drawing circles like the maximum that the government can do to ensure safe access to them? It is tricky, too, because living downtown, if you don't have space in in your unit for your housing, um, you know, you have to go to these parks. Not everyone has access to a car or wants to spend over an hour on a subway and then taking a bus. You know, I personally have been avoiding public transit during this and kind of walking, even if it takes me longer, just because of, you know, my personal safety and the safety of others. And it makes it difficult because not everyone can drive out, you know, to some forest somewhere, take a trip to Algonquin Park and go portaging and get a big dose of of nature that way. People have limitations and also not everyone can take an afternoon break and just go walk around a park when maybe it's a little less busy because they're working, you know, full-time hours or they're essential workers. So when can they access the park safely? Yeah. It's just, I'm just, I'm, I'm just wondering about, you know, how more likely folks who have like better access to healthcare or other, other services, how, how much, how much more likely they are to like access um, green spaces relative to those people who don't have this access, like people who have like resource constraints who might be inadvertently getting excluded out of green spaces because they recognize that if, if they get sick, they don't they don't have that kind of like access to um, healthcare. So they're kind of like missing out on the entire physical, uh, mental benefits of green spaces. You know, how do we design to include or how do we foster the sense of belonging through urban nature while we're still acknowledging and addressing these inequalities that we're talking about with regards to public use and access and safety? And how do you do this when we have to adhere to physical distancing and safety measures? I think certainly having better lighting in parks is really important. Uh, As a woman, I wouldn't walk through a dark park at night. It just isn't something I would do for safety reasons. I I just wouldn't do it. I would go out of my way, walk along a route just to avoid being in that area. So even for, as we were talking about, you know, people that are not able to access healthcare as easily, they're not going to go in a busy park during a day, or if they have different hours, maybe, you know, they get off work at eight and they want to go for for a nightly walk. If it's not a well-lit park, they're not going to choose to go there maybe so having that can certainly extend the the life cycle of parks in a way by having it be more available more accessible at all times i completely agree that's been my experience as well even outside of toronto pretty much anywhere i go um, especially if i'm doing solo travel i'm even during the day you know i'm always on alert and it's it's sad that that is sort of a normal narrative for many women 
types of infrastructure are great stepping stones to to ensuring safety for trans women and other minorities, you know, that might be targets for safety issues. Um, I know that when I was in Singapore, um, they had a system that if you needed a taxi, pretty much at any hotel or intersection or sidewalk, you could press a button and they would uh, send a signal, I guess, to a central taxi company there. And it would send you a taxi to that location, I think within the span of like five minutes. And I used it and it was, I thought it was very easy, but implementing these things again, look like different processes for different areas around the world. You know, Singapore is a place with a lot, one of the highest GDPs per capita in the entire world. So they have a lot of funding to implement programs like that. Um, I think it's interesting to talk about these things at other scales too, even at the transit level. Like who has access to these spaces? You know, you think about some of these parks that have those benches that have like, I don't know if you guys have seen with the handles in between that like prevent uh, homeless people from sleeping on the benches. And, you know, that's a big thing that we're seeing in a lot more cities is them implementing these kinds of benches so they can choose who comes and goes through uh, these different green spaces. And, you know, you also see depending on how where people are installing security cameras and stuff, that can be a big deterrent to who wants to go in the green space and who feels comfortable there as well. So there's like all of these additional factors that kind of influence who you see in the green spaces and who feels comfortable experiencing them. 880 cities. It's the idea that um, cities are designed with eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds in mind. How can you design to have safety measures that take precautions for both age groups so that they can both function normally? Feeling safe is a big part of um, being outdoors. For some people, going on hikes is not accessible, you know, Um, and that's why there are some paved hiking trails. Um, you know, not everybody is able to walk if they live far away from one. They have to take uh, like public transit or they're taking bikes. And so it's important to have those options accessible to them. I know for myself, even like going, I like going to High Park, uh, but there's no way I'd be walking, just walking through High Park because, you know, there's so many areas where it's hard to see around corners and stuff. And you want to make sure that you're you're safe as a woman. So I always take I always uh, take advantage of the bike share program there. But even so, we uh, they talked about on CP24 about the bike shortage that we have in a lot of these cities. And I think that that's something that really needs to change to be so we can become a lot more bike centric and walking centric so that those that aren't in cars and those that are uh, trying to utilize more green alternatives have access to do so. Working from home, if I'm saving on like one, two hours of transit each day, I think I'm going to be more likely to like go to green spaces, you know, because like everyone's just like hustling. And so that kind of like leaves less time for taking care of yourself, for which like one part of is going to green spaces. I think what's also really interesting is um, the way that cities are sort of being forced to change the way they are being designed because of COVID-19, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw a lot of new change. For example, downtown, a lot of car lanes were opened up to cyclists and to people who were running and walking. Um, even on the Gardner, there was some viral footage that went on a um, group of people who were skateboarding on the Gardner. I mean, that might have been a stretch, but um, it's still interesting to see how cities around the world are setting up shop and making, I guess you could call them temporary pilot programs, um, to see how these demands now for different needs for public use and public use spaces are changing.
you know, I think that the impetus for, for a lot of non-action previously in enhancing the public realm and, and green space has been, it's been too inconvenient, it's not possible, we have to do all these processes, it doesn't fit in the budget, whatever. But because of COVID, it's more inconvenient not to do it. We need to do it for our safety, for our economy, for our cities, just to function and be healthy. And it's it's interesting how now, you know, we're more at risk from not doing things than doing them. So hopefully that will continue in some of these, you know, so-called pilot projects and different pop-up initiatives will become more permanent and it can be kind of be normalized and, and it'll be just a part of our There's urban There's actually habit. a drive-in concert that's uh, scheduled to happen. I think it's uh, maybe first week of August. Uh, division is uh they announced uh i think it was like a couple days ago that they're going to be selling tickets for a driving concert at the portland oh that's that's really cool i hadn't heard of that before they used to have a movie theater there a driving theater there by on cherry street and they're now using that space to have a drive-in concert which is pretty interesting i think that would be something cool to talk about once uh we see how that plays out yeah for sure i think that's definitely a good point um i think we're definitely seeing like not just in the pandemic, but uh, just in general, a lot of these cities, we're seeing more and more uh, like community initiatives coming up, like 880 cities, like you mentioned, uh, that are just kind of like filling in the spaces between what the municipal government is doing and what people actually need. Um, you know, I remember hearing about there was a program downtown Toronto that was uh, bringing out, they had like little pop-up chairs and I guess they were identifying spaces where there weren't, where there wasn't enough seating and people wanted to be able to sit and eat with their friends and interact and stuff, but the, the, the options just wasn't there. Um, so I guess they come around and they put, they put chairs in the spaces that we need more seating and stuff. Um, and I think that that definitely can improve spaces and it just, it makes it easier for people to interact with them and have more, uh, just, good experiences within the city spaces. Think of um, Open Streets TO, which is um, an annual event in the summer in Toronto, uh, where parts of Bloor and Young Street are closed off. And I remember in, in 2019, part of Bloor was turned into a makeshift pop-up park with over 5,000 square feet of grass on the road. And there were kids playing and kind of following the 880 cities concept. It was people of all ages there enjoying the space together. And it wasn't unsafe. It wasn't, you know, inconvenient it was just pedestrians were prioritized over over cars and and it was a really nice thing to see and obviously it's you know just for a day but it's certainly feasible to have these things be more permanent on on smaller streets and having different parkettes public art of course that you can find it in many parks along sidewalks green spaces and i saw an example when i was at halifax actually that they had at a bus stop painted a mural on the by the sidewalk and like a whole strip sort of like how the pilot on king west is where they had muskoka chairs that were painted um the bus stop was painted and um and i think that's another implicit way that you can sort of spice up a lot of areas that are quote-unquote green but they're green concrete yes you're outdoors yes you're in the fresh air but you're surrounded by a concrete jungle essentially how they've created the beltway underneath the gardener and just like how how much of a difference that has made for people you know they have you have this space that's just kind of there um and the, the city's managed to there's gardens down there there's ice rinks like uh they were talking about holding movies down there and i think that's just that's just a great example of how the city can kind of transform a space so that uh the public can access it and it can become uh, something that we're utilizing as opposed to something that's just kind of there and taking up room. 
this pandemic is just showing us that we've always had the resources and the means to help the communities that are needing the help. You know, it's just who do we prioritize and who do we care about? I think that's definitely a great point to raise, you know, talking about how, uh, you know, community members are kind of like taking claim to their spaces and really making it their own and transforming it so that it can meet the needs that may not be otherwise met. One of the things that comes to mind when I'm thinking about this is, I don't know if any of you podcast listeners have heard of this, but there's the Urban Repair Squad in Toronto. And one of the things I remember hearing about in Kensington Market, I guess they realized that the speed limit used to be 40k an hour. And they realized that when the market was on, there's like lots of people coming and going, people aren't really looking where they're going, they're crossing the street, they want to go to this store, they want to get food from here. And it's kind of a dangerous place for cars to be going 40k an hour. So they had taken it on themselves to change the street signs to lower the speed limit to 10k an hour, because they realized the need in the community was for cars to be going a bit slower and for it to be uh, a lot safer for pedestrians and cyclists to use the space and be able to interact with the market and shops that were there. Recognizing that what your community needs and taking it upon yourself in a legal way to, <laughs> to um, you know, transform the space and to make it your own and to take your claim on it. The idea of tactical urbanism, which is ex exactly that, it's residents and community members kind of filling in the gap of what's not happening or being led by the private sphere or municipalities and kind of taking this in their own hands. There was a project in, in Argentina I was reading about not too long ago where a community decided to create a plaza um, in, their, in their subdivision in their little court area. And so they had grass area and then they painted along the concrete as well to make this beautiful kind of art display so it was sort of dead space not really used and then it became like a symbol of the strength of their community and their hard work and their social cohesion and personalizing it and making it a feature of the community rather than just an inevitable piece of, of infrastructure. Same thing with Sabina Ali for the Tendura Girls. The community in Thorcliffe Park is a predominantly Muslim. Her idea was to replace the barbecue grills that were local to the park. The apartment complexes in the area are all uh, surrounding a local park in the middle. She put up a project to replace the barbecue grills in the park with tandoor grills, which is what you use to make naan and uh, roti and other, you know, food that the community eats and that part of their cultural tradition. Now it's spinballed into community garden, into a farmer's market, and just a community hub where a lot of events happen that matches their need because it's very interesting to see how you know this project has really propelled a discussion about local communities access to green space and how you tailor that to the local community's need. It, it crosses that barrier of transforming it into home and making people care about the streets and what goes on in their streets. You know you can talk about like Jane Jacobs theory about the like eyes on the street phenomenon about how you know, you have these, some of these small towns and stuff that you get these people that like the shop owners are watching so carefully what's going on in the streets. You have everybody, everybody around that's so concerned about people's safety and making sure that things are, are legal and safe and that just everybody is able to interact with the space to the best of their ability. And, you know, you kind of really lose that in a lot of big urban spaces because there's just so many people going around. Everyone's more concerned about themselves and the people that they're with than just random passersby on the streets. So, you know, if you're able to transform a space into something that people really care about and that they feel that they really have like a stakehold in, uh, it just really changes what that community looks like and how safe it is as well. If after you're done listening to the podcast and you are curious, I think 
you should check out the East Scarborough storefront, um, their basketball courts project. This is a project in the Galloway neighborhood in East Scarborough. The local community here is predominantly Black Caribbean youth and are interested in basketball or interested in arts. A consultation group went in, I believe it was Rally Rally, partnered up with the East Scarborough storefront there and they designed basketball courts with art on them. The basketball courts have drawn, you know, a lot of people from the community to come and use them and to create a community space that is engaging, is exciting, is what the community wants. Thank you, everyone, for such great thoughts and, and conversations today. I hope that everyone listening in learned something new and enjoyed being a part of our conversation on democratizing the inequitable access to green space. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cities Unmasked with Lumna Ali. Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. If you like our show and want to know more, please check out our Instagram page at Cities Unmasked. Or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. A special thank you goes out to the University of Toronto School of Cities.